0: Micah chapter 1, verse 10 through 16. Uh, the question at the outset is the title of this sermon. Does God punish sin? Question mark. Does God punish sin? Does God punish sin? Micah 1, verse 10. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all in Beth Afra. Roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way Inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Esel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Marov wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from Yahweh to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. For in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Morasheth Goth. The houses of Aksib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Mereshah, the glory of Israel shall come to a julem. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair. For the children of your delight, make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. This is the very word of the living God. Does God punish sin? I haven't used this before. (laughs) Let's get started. Stop. Does God punish sin? That's what I want to talk to you about. Have you thought about justice lately? There's so much in our world to talk about when it comes to justice in 2020. People on the streets are talking about justice. People in your classroom, professors, are talking about justice, social justice, societal equalities or inequalities. Uh, Past injustices in national history seem to be the focus of this year. And if you're a student of history, you know that that's not something new. Issues pertaining to civil rights have plagued our nation's history uh, from its very beginnings. And so it is a pop thing to talk about justice. It's a popular topic to think about what is right and what is wrong, what is righteous and what is fundamentally unfair. And you've heard our pastor talking about social justice in a negative sense. He did a whole series out of the book of Ezekiel talking about social justice that I know a lot of you were tuned in for. And for some of you, it hit your ears weird because you were listening to him and going, so MacArthur's against social justice. And... Social justice, just at its very you know, sound of it, sounds like a positive thing, right? Shouldn't there be justice in society? Isn't that something that God would approve of? And if you dug a little deeper and, and paid attention to the whole series and didn't let you know, your, your professor at UCLA cloud your thinking too much, I think you would come to understand that what Pastor MacArthur was talking about was a definition of social justice that would be very familiar on your campus. Uh, A kind of upheaval in society that questions those who have things automatically and wants to redistribute those things to to those who do not have things. Uh, An attempt to repair past inequalities by those who've inherited the advantages of the lack of inequality on others. And some of you listened to those series and struggled with, with how to think about social justice. And, and what I'd like to do tonight in looking at Micah chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, is give you a foundation, a foundation of understanding this most central term to the book of Micah. The word we talked about last week was the word judgment, right? We talked about judgment, That was the focus of the book of of Micah for sure. But it's also important for us to understand that we're not going to ever get out of judgment. Remember, Micah's arranged as oracles of judgment, as speeches from God through his prophet all about the judgment of his people. But judgment has to do with justice at its very heart. And so tonight we're talking about does God punish Sin. That's the question. And to understand that question, I want you to think carefully, not just about how our world is thinking about justice today, but I want you to think about it's harder to write and talk than people recognize. I want you to think about how justice is portrayed to us in the Bible, how the word justice comes to us in the Bible. And I haven't hold anything from a modern discussion about social justice tonight. I just want to think biblically about the concept justice. Only thinking biblically about the concept justice because what we see in Micah chapter 1 verses 6 and or verses 10 and following 10 to 16 is just this rolling out of judgment on all these place names. It's Micah's lament that he promised us in verse 8 being explained and lamented and cried over and announced to all of these cities, some of them known, some of them unknown as far as their modern location goes. And what you do with that, I think, has to do with how you think about justice. Where does God get the right to pour out his wrath? And when you see an example in the Bible, or even today, of God putting judgment on people, of God sending people to hell forever, for example, or of God bringing a nation down in the headlines or in the Bible times, I want you to think about what you think about when you think about justice. And so we're going to go old school for a few minutes at the beginning, and just talk about a biblical understanding of justice, just from Scripture, just kind of the way a a theologian would approach it from 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 400 years ago. Christian theologians have been thinking about justice for a long time, and I would like to just summarize kind of their basic approach to thinking about justice biblically. Justice is related in the Bible to other concepts automatically. It's related to the concept of God's holiness. Do you see why that would be? God's justice, the the doing of righteousness, has to be related to God's moral perfection, His holiness, that God is perfectly holy. And I already used a, a word that's almost synonymous in the Bible to justice, that word righteousness. So you can't think about Justice, without thinking about God's holiness and without thinking about righteousness, the, the requirements, the right requirements of God. There's really two words in the Bible that are connected here to this word justice. Uh, one is the, the Hebrew word. Uh, the Hebrew word for, for justice is, uh, it looks like this. And if you want to do vowel pointings, it looks like that. And it's that word tzedak, tzedak sadak and, and if you want to write that in English, sort of, uh, transliterated doc something like that, okay? That's the Hebrew word for justice. The Greek word for justice, you'll also find it in the Bible, in the New Testament, is a, a simple word. It's dikaios, okay? Dikaios. And, and that word is, and to do that one in English, it's a lot easier in Greek, right? D-K- um, os. So, both of these words—the Hebrew term "tzedak" and the Greek term uh, "diakos"—these concepts have to do with conformity to rule. Conformity to rule. Picture, picture a ruler, a, a measure, uh, a canon. This is this is how things are measured. This is how things are are standardized. This is this is what the rules are. This is. This is what's right and what's wrong. This is a very black and white concept, justice in the Bible. To to start thinking about it, go over in your Bible, and we'll come back to Micah, to the book of Leviticus. Go to the book of Leviticus. That's the book that's full of, of laws in the Bible. Right after Exodus, you'll find it. Leviticus chapter 19 and bear with me here. We got we got work to do, so we're at Leviticus, Leviticus nineteen thirty six. Leviticus nineteen thirty six says, "You have, you shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin." I am Yahweh your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt. Now that's fascinating, right? If you go back to verse 27, it says, you shall not round off the side growth of your heads, nor harm the edges of your beard. These are rules, rules about practical matters of life for God's covenant people, Israel. It's why Jews don't eat pork, right? No bacon for Jewish friends. This is the foundation of those kind of rules that modern Jews still hold today. This is the Levitical law, and the law included rules about sexual uh, cleanliness, rules about how you treated your neighbor, how you tended the land, how you dealt with debt, uh, and even things like haircuts. They were a distinct people. They had rules from God that were reflective of God's character, his holiness, his righteousness, his rule, his standard. That's where the foundation of this is. And you start to understand how it would affect other people when God tells them That because he's the God who redeemed them, who brought them out of Egypt, they have to be fair in the way that they measure. That's what that verse is about. Balances, weights, ephah, hin. It's this. If you were going to buy a bag of flour from your fellow Israelite, he wasn't going to cheat you and give you 15 ounces of flour when you paid for 16 ounces of flour. That was God's demand that the scales were right. And it wasn't just on commodities and goods. It was on all the way that righteousness and justice was practiced in society, how crimes were punished, how, how murder was seen, how everything was dealt with from uh, disobeying your parents to stealing something that belongs to someone else. God had a standard of righteousness that he required So it was about having a just balance. That's the concept behind the Old Testament word. It really could be about things, measurable things being dealt with rightly. Another important verse about biblical justice, and and all this will help us in understanding what Micah is so upset about and what God is bringing this this punishment on the people about. And, And I think there'll be something for you as well, but... Stick with me. Go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the the fifth book of the Old Testament. And in Deuteronomy chapter 32, we have another really important verse in thinking about Sadak, in thinking about God's view of, of justice, of judgment, of righteousness. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. Moses is speaking to the Israelites about to cross into the promised land. And he says, the rock, speaking of God, the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. This is where we see the connection between justice and holiness and righteousness. All being rooted in who God is, I asked Aaron earlier what the attributes of his homeboy were, and he told us that he was artistic, <laughs> that he had this way about him, and then he described it in a way that was completely confounding to me but That's the idea of an attribute, right? It's how you describe someone. That person is kind, that person is tall, that person is short and mean, you know, whatever. You can describe a person by what they are like. Moses describes God here as the rock, his work is perfect, all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. The starting point to think about biblical justice requires us to think about God. God is perfect. Everything he does is perfect. He defines justice and righteousness. And so this already puts us as creatures on our heels. You have lots of ideas about what is right and wrong in society. Some of them you inherited from your parents. Some of them you got from your education. Some of them you just sense them to be right and wrong. You think people ought not to treat other people that way. Well, you, friend, are not the standard of justice and righteousness. God is. How people are to be treated, how things should work out in human relationships is ultimately dependent on how God says they should be And that's ultimately dependent on who God is. And in his very nature, his core attributes has to do with his holiness, his perfection, his justice, his faithfulness, his righteousness, his uprightness. So in other words, what God says justice is, is justice. As Christians, as followers of God, we get our definition of justice not from whatever society says is good and right, we get our sense of justice from God, who within himself defines perfection, because he is perfect in his character. That's the starting point. Now let's, let's borrow from theologians of old, and we'll just go for a few more minutes on this part, and then we'll look at that passage in Micah with all the towns in it. I know you can't wait, but stick with me. You're doing great. This is a break from midterms. This is how you take a break from midterms. You work a different part of your brain, okay? We're going to do systematics. This is stolen unabashedly from Charles Hodge. Charles Hodge, Princeton theologian, Charles Hodge. Look him up sometime. He's not a slacker. He and other theologians in the past have thought about God's justice, biblical justice, in three categories, okay? Three categories. The first, rectoral justice. I know that sounds like a really bad anatomical word, but that's the word they've used. Rectoral justice. Rectoral justice would best be explained by showing you Romans 132. Okay? Romans 132 says, although they know the ordinance of God or the law of God. That those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. This verse is talking about God's requirements of pouring out his wrath on sinners. That's the context. You can go back up to verse 29. It talks about unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. These are all vices, sins, great categories of evil that God is exposing in human race. But look what it says. Although they know the ordinance of God, the ordinance of God. To understand rectal judgment is to talk about the kind of justice that recognizes what we just talked about with the foundation of justice. This is God as the moral ruler, as the judge of all mankind, the one who gets to decide if your thoughts and actions are acceptable. And not just yours, but all of mankind whether you're a, a, whether you believe the bible or whether you don't believe the bible whether you follow jesus as a disciple and call yourself a christian or, or whether you're an animist a pagan uh, whatever god ultimately is the decider of all righteousness he judges all mankind in their heart and in their actions abraham in genesis 18:25 called God so early in in God's revelation of himself, the judge of all the earth. In Psalm 50, verse 6, the psalmist says, David, the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. So this is the, the most theologically centered part of justice. It's that God is the one who judges, not just you as a believer, but all of his creatures, including angels. So God as universal judge is where an understanding of justice begins. That's why that that verse in Romans is reminding us that there's an ordinance, a law that is within God. And so all right and wrongness, all moral codes come from God himself. That's rectoral justice. Okay, the rest of the words aren't so yucky. Number two... The second category of justice has two parts, but it's called distributive justice. Okay, distributive justice. And the place to recognize that would be in the book of Romans. The book of Romans, again, in chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 7. It says, "...to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life. Verse 8, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Now, here we see two categories that are both flowing out of verse 6. Romans 2, verse 6, who will render to each person according to his deeds. God promises that he will distribute justice, that he will execute the law, that no sin will go unpunished. That's the idea of distributive justice, that he will render judgment on all. Since he is the source of all justice, he will now be the one to distribute justice. And he does that in two categories, okay? So we'll go a little bit in here. And the first way is Remunerative re, re hey stop it. Remunerative justice. And that would be, you know, remuneration is what you get if you work at Chick fil A every other Friday. It's your paycheck, right? Remuneration. You guys scored well on, on entrance exams, you know, fancy words like remuneration. Remunerative justice is that justice from the book of Romans in chapter. verse 6. It's that God will pay each one what he's due. It's that parable in Luke 17 where God decides who will be rewarded and who will be punished. Remuneration is God giving reward. And whenever we see God rewarding people, we know because we understand that we're sinners and we don't deserve anything from God except the wrath and curse of God, that this is always an expression of grace, of God's love, of God's kindness. And so distributive justice, the first side of that coin, is remunerative justice. It's the kindness of God in rewarding those who do good. And there's lots of other verses I could give you for that, but we'll... Stick to right there. The second side of that coin, flip it over, and you have something that we learned about in the book of Job. Retributive justice. This is the infliction of penalty on sinners. This is Romans chapter 1, verse 32. It says, although they know the ordinance of God, remember it, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, They not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. The idea of being worthy of death is remunerative justice. If if retributive justice breaks down in in categories of remunerative and in uh, retributive, I'm sorry, if distributive justice breaks down in those two categories of remunerative, and remunerative is the, the righteous being rewarded, 1 Samuel 26, 23, the Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, uh, Exodus talking about the compensation paid to Israelites uh, from the Egyptians. Uh, David saying in the Psalms, "The Lord has recompense or paid me." Uh, that this idea of being rewarded. The flip side of that is always going to be the retributive justice that God will punish the wicked for their actions. Lots of verses should come to your mind. Deuteronomy thirty-two, thirty-five: "That uh, vengeance is mine, and retribution." In due time, their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. De- Deuteronomy 32:35. That's the, the Jonathan Edwards verse. Uh, the sinners in the hands of an angry God, their foot shall slide in due time. God will punish all sinners. All of them will receive the punishment that is appropriate and due for their sins. We can all imagine a heinous crime committed against the people we love the most. Someone that takes the life of someone who's precious to you or violates and harms them in a shocking and awful way. We understand that innately there is some need for that to be made right, for that person to be punished or put somewhere where they can't inflict further harm on you and your family or another family. That's basic to a human understanding of justice. God does that perfectly. In his retributive justice, every single wrong will be dealt with. Now, remember, Job's friends thought that was a mere mechanical or mathematical function. They didn't understand the issues of God's timing and how to interpret God's providence. But they were right fundamentally that God punishes all sins. That's retributive justice. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6, and 7 says, It's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted. The soul who sins shall surely die. Lots of examples in the Bible of retributive justice. The third category of justice, and the final category of the way theologians have thought about justice when they think about biblical justice, is redemptive justice. Redemptive justice. You see, there's no other way to account for salvation, for redemption, for the gospel, than to have another category of justice that speaks of the things that are the core message of the Bible. Things like justification. How can it be that God can pass over sins previously committed? These are core questions in the book of Romans and in the New Testament. How can it be that that one man in his dying can take the place of a whole race of sinners who are in Christ? These fundamental questions are questions about redemptive justice a justice that promises that God will set right, but also ensures that there will be a reward for those who trust in Christ. Uh, Exodus 34, 7, he'll by no means clear the guilty. Well, then how are the guilty cleared? Because you and I as sinners by nature and by choice are guilty. So how are the guilty cleared? That's Exodus 34, seven, by the way. How are the guilty cleared? Well, the guilty are cleared because there is such a thing as redemptive justice. Okay. You still with me? Did you go to sleep? Are we cool? That was a lecture on biblical justice. You, you hung on. Maybe you learned something. Maybe you didn't. But those are your three categories. Back to Micah chapter two. And now I want to walk you through this and help you understand what's happening here. Okay? Okay. What are we talking about in relation to God punishing sin, this idea of justice, and this passage, Micah 1, 10 through 16, a lesson from the Lord distributing punishment on all these cities? Well, this is an example of something that you have heard before. This is the lowest form of humor in our society you call them dad jokes, right? What's the difference between Dubai and Abu Dhabi? You know, it's a dad joke. People in Dubai don't like the Flintstones. People in Abu Dhabi do. That's a dad joke. The reason it's a dad joke is that dads know them. They use them on small children and the small children learn that someday they have to move out of the house and start their own family. That's the purpose of a dad joke. It's a way of that eagles remove softness from the nests so the little birds will fly. Dad jokes are cringy, they're not very funny, and they usually involve a play on words. They're called puns. And as you get older, this is especially true of, of males, as you get older you find puns to be more funny, okay? Puns are plays on words. Uh, I knew a girl in high school. She had a taser. She was stunning. That's a pun. That's a pun. You like that? There's more where that came from. So puns grab onto a word. Uh, they, They say, you know, this is like a whiteboard. You know what this is? This is like a digital whiteboard. You know what I'd call it? Remarkable. Yeah, see, whiteboards are remarkable. So there's all those kind of, see, they're not funny. They hurt you to hear them. They make you dislike me. Um, you know, I ha, You know, I use pencils. I love to use pencils, but writing with a dull pencil, what is it? It's pointless, that's right. See, they just keep going. This is how puns work. What we have in this section in Micah is puns like crazy. Wordplay uh, of the most incredible and careful and simultaneously messy arrangement. The prophets often spoke in poetic terms. They used puns, plays on words, not to make people laugh and not even to make them groan, but to show them that in their culture, names mattered. We talked about this a little bit last week. There was something ominous in the name. There was something prophetic in the name. And what's being described in this passage is this category of justice. It's distributive justice. And mainly, it's retributive. It's this category where people are being punished by God. And Micah has to lament. Remember what he said in verse 8, for this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. It's this moment where Micah is showing his heartbrokenness and he does it by play of words. And it's again, different than our puns in that it's not funny, but It's like our puns in that it's these exact kind of plays on words that expose God's displeasure with his people. And it starts with Gath. There's 12 places, and we'll do them quickly. Tell it not in Gath. Well, Gath is a place of telling, a place where the telling was famous in Israelite history. The story goes all the way back to the book of Samuel. In that book, David heard about the loss of the Israel army and that King Saul and his best friend Jonathan were killed in this battle. And David cries in that moment, cries out and says, Tell it not in Gath, weep not. Gath was the Philistine headquarters, and he could just picture these soldiers, these evil soldiers who punished Israel and hated God, the ones who were the descendants of Goliath, laughing about this victory, laughing about how they defeated David's uh, army, about how Israel had fallen, and he wanted them to not tell the story. He wanted to do a media blackout. He wanted to put on the tweet, uh, this information is not confirmed. This is not in accordance with facts right now. Are they doing that? So that's exactly what David wanted in this moment. And so Micah borrows from history and says, tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. You see, the judgment of God is coming to his own people, not to just to the nations mentioned in the passage before. But in this passage, he wants The world to not know what's about to happen. He doesn't want the enemies of God to laugh. He doesn't want those who've who've rejoiced in Israel's difficulties to find out about her impending doom and destruction. And so he wants there to be no funeral rites, there to be no crying, there to be no mention of this because he doesn't want the enemies to hear it. Remember, his audience is not the Philistines. His audience is Israelites. This is going to ring in their ears one of their greatest defeats in their history and remind them of how bad it is when they are beaten in front of the nations. When God's favored people look like they've fallen out of their own God's favor, tell it not in gath, weep not at all. And so the first little city that's talked about is to tell it in gath. Now, that's not very wordplay, though there is a little bit there. I'm gonna leave it aside because these get more and more obvious. Uh, the next one that you see, the next one that you see is in that same verse. In beth le Afra, roll yourselves in the dust. beth le Afra, roll yourself in the dust. This is a city, all these cities that are about to be named, all 12 of these cities are all in the Shephelah, the area where Micah was from. Remember on our little map? I have that quality map here on my my computer uh, of Israel. Remember what it looks like? Israel always looks like puddle, line, puddle. There, Israel. Now you have it. And in the Jerusalem down over yanda, in the southern part, right? Here's the capital city, Jerusalem. And southwest, this whole area between the sea and the mountains of Judea would have been all these little cities. So that's what he's talking about. The first one is Gath, where he doesn't want the story to be told. The second one is this town that's known as Dustyville. That's what the word means. It's a word that means dust. Uh, It's a play on that word dust. And it's as if he says in Dustyville and Bethlehem Aphra was always known to be town of dust. And maybe they didn't know why it was called that except when the wind kicked up and it got a little bit dusty. Uh, They were known like Chicago is the windy city. This was known as the city that had dust in its name. They were told to roll yourselves in dust. What does that mean? It's an ancient Near Eastern way of grieving. Like the screaming jackal like we heard about in verse 8 last time. Here is this ancient way of showing mourning, screaming and rolling in the dirt, covering yourself in dust. Remember the sackcloth and ashes you've read about in other places in the the Bible? This is that kind of a moment. They're down in the dirt. They're like Job in the ash heap. They're completely mourning because they are going to be decimated by invading armies. Verse 11, pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, And here we see another place. And this is the word, this is related to the word in Hebrew for beauty. And so this could be like pretty town or prettyville or something like that. And that's the idea behind the word Shafir. And the text says to get out of beauty town, leave in nakedness and shame. And so this place that was apparently associated with that word beauty, built into its name received this prophetic judgment that instead of beauty, she would be naked and ashamed. Uh, A harsh and frightening judgment. The next town that's listed is Za'anan. Za'anan. Uh, The residents do not go out. Uh, The word in this passage, we're looking at verse 11, the inhabitant of Za'anan does not escape the Lamentation of Beth Izzel. Za'anan has the word exit in it, and so there's no exit in Exitopolis. It's something like that. It's this idea that you will not be able to escape this town that was known for the name escape. Uh, it's also related to this word for uh, for exiting or being being trapped in, for being cooped up. You can see how being cooped up and exiting could be related. Uh, The the residents will not be able to leave. The fifth town mentioned is Beth Ezel. You see it there in the next verse. At Beth Ezel, uh, verse 11, second half, the lamentation of Beth Ezel, he will take you from its support. This one's kind of tricky, but it's related to the word standing. And so the town meant standing place. Uh, and it's close to the word standing. And so the idea is there'll be no one that will, this could be the word neighbor as well, because a neighbor is someone who stands next to someone else. So there's no neighbor in Neighborville. Uh, There's nothing neighborly there. There's no place to stand there. This is just city after city being destroyed and its name being played against them in this poem. And again, these are puns, But he's not telling jokes. This is tragic. His eyes would have been flowing with tears. He was brokenhearted. This wasn't some far-off place. This was his people. He was from the Shethpala. He was from the plains, the farm area, between the coast and the mountains. The next city that he mentions is Maroth, Marot. And you've heard the word Marah, right? Marah means bitter in Hebrew. And so this is a town of bitters. And it's the kind of place uh, that had this name. And the, the text says, look at here, uh, Marah. It's for the inhabitant of Marots becomes weak waiting for good because a calamity has come down from Yahweh to the gate of Jerusalem. Marah was a place of bitter, bitter or evil. And now it's a place where there is no good to be had. They'll wait forever for sweet." because no good will come to them. It's really a a shocking kind of statement. Seven would have been this massive thud. It's the word Jerusalem. And if Jerusalem falls, what do these little towns have anything to, to wait for? There is nothing left if Jerusalem goes down. And so it says calamity has come to the gate of Jerusalem. But the surprising thing about that calamity in Jerusalem is where this calamity comes from. It comes from who, verse 12? Syria, the ancient superpower over here that's coming to to smash them, hoping maybe that Egypt will save them from down here. No, it doesn't say calamity comes from Assyria. It says calamity comes from the Lord, right? Yahweh. You see it there in verse 12? A calamity has come down from the Lord, from Yahweh. And so this calamity has come to the chief city, God's chosen city, Jerusalem. And the name Jerusalem has in it the idea of both Yahweh, Jerusalem, that's Yahweh at the beginning, and Salem, which means peace, like shalom. And so the idea and the play on this heartbreaking moment in, in this grand poetry designed in both a uh, a careful yet haphazard way, the grammar in this section is all messed up. The, the feminines and the masculines don't go together. It's choppy. It's strange. Every Hebrew scholar crack, scratches their head at this thing. But you get the basic idea because of these word plays. Jerusalem has calamity. Yahweh's city of peace has war at her gates. Yahweh's city of peace has been given over not to calamity from the Assyrians, but the city of peace, the gates are going to fall because Yahweh brings calamity. The eighth city mentioned there is in verse 13. It says, Harness the chariot to the team of horses, O inhabitant of Lachish. Uh, Lachish was the most fortified city of all. Uh, six miles from Micah's town, 20 miles south of Jerusalem, Lachish was this stronghold. It was an unassailable city. When Sennacherib finally beat Laish, uh, he had to go up against two outer walls of this this impregnable city. The first one was uh, 13 feet high. The second one was, no, his first one was 19 feet high. The second one was 13 feet high. These massive walls uh, were such a big deal for Sennacherib that when he went home, his palace, and you can still see this in the British Museum, has this massive multi-meter long uh, mural or painting of his defeat and sack of the city of Lachish. And he didn't Beat Jerusalem. It was the next guy that beat Jerusalem. So that was the best thing he could draw because he didn't get Jerusalem. But he was still so impressed with himself that he drew this massive uh, example of his military power in his beating of Lachish, this walled city. And it says, bind the chariot to the harness. The harness. And Lachish means harness. It's related to that word, uh, harness town. And so this, this fortress city was beaten. And they would be drug away by horses. That's the idea. Lash them up to the chariots and watch them go into the distance. The city that seemed to be unbeatable. She was the beginning of sin, verse 13, to the daughter of Zion, because in you were found the rebellious acts of Israel. Well, well here it is. We start to see what it is that God's so upset about. It's sin, it's rebellion. And this is where we start to understand that this is an act of retributive justice, that because of God's holiness, because of his faithful promise, he will punish his people. He will bring them into exile. He will use the Assyrians to set things the way they need to be set. The next city would have made Micah cry all the more because it's his hometown. And this is hometown here. It's got in the name of it. It has the word engaged or betrothed, as they would say. And the idea here in that town, I don't know if it was a place where, where uh, I mean, I did a little reading on it, and it was a place where they made poetry, or poetry made pottery for the royal city. And so that was one of the things they did there. Uh, the idea behind this verse is that there'll be no there'll be no inheritance. Uh, and inheritance in their culture was related to the gifts that the father-in-law would give the daughter, uh, a betrothal gift, an inheritance gift. And it says there'll be no inheritance or no wedding gifts to the inheritance of Gath. No gifts for the daughter-in-law of Betrothville. She will be given to another. It's really a horrifying picture, uh, the parting gifts on behalf of Moresheth Gath, it sounds to us like, you know, nothing in English. But in Hebrew, the idea is the city of betrothal will be taken away from her husband. She will not receive the gifts on her wedding day. Instead, she'll be dragged off to Assyria. That's really a horrifying picture. The 10th city named is there in uh, verse 14. The houses of Aksib will become a deception to the kings of Israel. The house of Aksib means deception or lies. Imagine living in a town called Lies. Uh, I mean, it's not that weird. Uh, Liesville, that's a nice name. Uh, it's not that weird because we have a town in California named Needles. I mean, that, what kind of name is that? There's a country in the world called Turkey. I can't convince my seven-year-old that it's a real country. There's no country called Turkey, Dad. Ha, 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 Turkey. So this place is called Deceitville, and it's a house of lies will lie to the kings of Israel. To the kings of Israel, the houses will become a deception. And so the lies are turned on its own country. Uh, The next place listed is Mareshah, And in this this one, uh, look down at verse 15. Moreover, I'll bring on you the one who takes possession, O inhabitant of Mareshah. Inhabited of Marashah, that, that's the word for conquer. Uh, it's a town that, I mean, imagine their, their high school football team was, was impressive because they were the conquerors. And now it says, conquerors will come to conquer town. The 12th one is another reference to history. It's, uh, you should recognize this word if you've read the Old Testament, a julum. A, a a was the, the land of caves, and it's the place where David, when he was a refugee, when he was on the lamb, when he was a criminal, when Saul was trying to kill him, and when his kingdom was falling apart later, David would go back to the caves, places where he could hide, places where bandits lived. A julem, what, what does it have to say to us about this coming judgment? The glory of Israel, that's likely a reference to the kings of Israel. The glory of Israel will enter a julem just like King David back in the day when his life was in danger. This whole country will be so devastated from the capital city to all these little towns will be so blistered and destroyed and threatened and hauled off by the Assyrian empire that the leaders among them will have their best success hiding in caves, no longer on thrones, No longer commanding armies, but out in the desert where outlaws hide, the glory of Israel will enter a julem. What a passage of Scripture, right? All kinds of wordplay. I mean, the point, I think you get it, is judgment is coming. God is going to bring punishment on all of his people. Samaria and Jerusalem are going to fall. Israel and Judah will not be spared God's judgment. The arrangement of this poetry is, is, is impressive and frantic. Uh, the stanzas, verses 10 through 12, verses 13 to 15, and then verse 16 puts a, puts a punctuation on it. So these first towns were here. These second list of towns were here. And it's just giving in poetic fashion. God's judgment is coming. Your name is is a fulfilled prophecy for how you'll be punished by God. But the exclamation point on it happens in this final stanza of verse 16. Look at what it says. Verse 16, make yourself bald. Some of us don't have to do that much to fulfill this verse. And cut off your hair. Because of the children of your delight. Extend your baldness like the eagle, for they will go from you into exile. That last verse is a shocking verse. That's offensive to me as a bald man, but again, I'm not the source of justice. God is, so he gets to decide what's right and wrong. And in biblical culture, baldness was a curse. Yeah, kind of like today. And a person who was afflicted with baldness was at least symbolically God had taken away their crown and their glory. Male pattern baldness, a curse from God. It's like a commercial for Rogaine. But what's happening in verse 16 is the total humiliation of the people of Israel. Wholesale, they will be cut off. Shaved heads, their children, drug away from them into Exile. The Assyrians were ruthless. They were famous for how cruelly they would punish the people they conquered. The Assyrians, which Siri thinks is her name, so stop it, had this reputation of ripping babies out of pregnant mothers' wombs, of beheading, of torturing. They were an unusually cruel kind of overlord. They loved to move a people, if they couldn't subject them, to move them, all of them, uh, at least the ones they didn't chop up, to a completely different culture and enslave them. They wouldn't know the language, they'd be foreigners there, no hope of escaping because they'd been marched 500 miles. This was how Assyria punished. And the people of Israel had a tendency, when they were threatened either by the superpower of Egypt to reach out to to Assyria for help or when they're threatened by Assyria to reach out to Egypt and all this would happen and they would know that divine judgment was coming. I mean, it's weird to hear a poem about cities, cities that you've probably never been to. Maybe you've been to Jerusalem or, or at least seen it in the headlines, but do you understand what this would have been like to say that, All the people that you know and love, the people who have all been part of of God's chosen nation, will be punished in such a severity where the torture and the exile and the oppression and the, the flattening of their cities is what's ahead of them. I did a version for California. It goes like this. Anthrax to Anaheim, devils fill the city of angels, sackcloth to Sacramento, Pasadena will pass away, blood will flow in wine country, the Bay Area in brutal battle, the golden state becomes a garbage state, the West Coast, the worst coast, California's highways full of hearses. Micah, huh? Yeah. So, I mean, it's going it's, to it make you you guys, I mean, one, sharing poetry publicly is, is a little much for me. Two, it's a creepy poem, right? It's, it's got Halloween all over it. That's what this sounded like. That's what they heard. I mean, they heard the judgment of God. And you know what? You've heard it too. If you've ever heard the gospel, you've heard the judgment of God. And I did a big, long, intentionally boring talk about rectoral justice, distributive justice, remunerative justice, retributive justice, redemptive justice. And I wonder how many of you wrote that down and thought, huh, interesting. But I wonder how many of you thought, that's me apart from Christ. I wonder how many of you thought about God's perfect justice and wondered, well, how is that going to hit? my unbelieving family? How's that gonna hit the town that I came from or the campus that someday you'll go back to? How many of you, when you think about God's justice, think about the souls that are in peril right now and how many of you, when you hear about the justice of God, remember that you deserve the full cup of God's wrath? because of your sin, because of your idolatry, because of your deviance, because you have not held the absolute holy and perfect standard of God. That's what all this talk about a theology of justice is about. It's not about what you're going to hit the streets about. First of all, it has to do with your soul before a holy God. Don't be talking to me about societal justice unless you understand that there is a greater justice that every single person has to reckon with. It's that we are sinners and God is holy and without his intervention of redemptive justice, there is no hope for us. That's where we have to narrow in on how the message of Micah is a message for us. It's a message for believers who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ with the hope that his sacrifice will have accomplished that redemption, that forgiveness. We're the ones that love to say that Jesus died for us. But that was an act of divine redemptive justice that made up for the retributive justice that was ours because of our sin. And we all look forward to heaven and, and we think, oh, imagine the, the, the glory of heaven. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more pain, so much joy, so much delight, so much reward. Well, that remunerative justice, when it's portrayed in the Bible, believers know that they don't deserve it. So they take those crowns and they put them right at Jesus' feet because God's character is one of holiness and righteousness and perfect justice. The warning about God's judgment is all over the Bible. But in the book of Romans, chapter 11, verse 22, it sounds like this. Behold then the kindness and severity of God, to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness, if you continue in His kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Friends, how does that hit you? David Hume, the 17th-century atheist, went and listened to George Whitfield preach. And scores of people were converted every time Whitfield preached. And when Hume went and heard him, because he was so famous, I mean, he had to hear this guy, he came back and somebody teased him and said, David Hume, do you believe? And he said, No. But Whitfield sure does. If you believe, in the justice of God, it will show. Because like Micah, you will cry for California. You will weep for the city of angels. You will be mournful about the plight of Westwood. And you will be grateful for the salvation that you have that you do not deserve. May God help us apply the thanksgiving and warning that should accompany every bit of our understanding of the holy, righteous justice of God. Father, thank you for your word and your truth. Thank you for being with us tonight, and your spirit teaching us. We need to apply these things and think on these things and, and make sure that first and foremost, we have been made right with you. As sinners, we deserve your judgment. And Father, you have made a way for us to be forgiven in Christ. So if there are any here tonight who do not know you savingly, I pray that they would cry out to Jesus. And because of his death and resurrection, they would know that forgiveness is possible, that it's free. And that it's made available to us through Jesus. And they believe on his name for the rest of us that have trusted Jesus. May we be so thankful for the one who was truly just, who died in our place, the just for the unjust to bring us to you. God be with us tonight as we sing again and as we pray and as we fellowship. May our hearts be filled with compassion for those who are the objects of God's your wrath and thanksgiving for Christ in our place. In Jesus' name, amen.